Please be sure to visit our Etsy store for some great Warrior Next Door podcast merchandise. And please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to our Facebook page to sign up and receive each series uncut in its entirety. Welcome to the third installment of the Aziz El Rafai podcast series on the Warrior Next Door, where in the first two series, you would have heard Aziz talk about what it was like growing up in Iraq prior to the war led by the United States and the Coalition of the Willing, as it was called, to overthrow Saddam Hussein and how His family suffered immensely during those times, and he was ultimately impelled to join the United States Armed Forces as an interpreter and never regretted that decision. So in this episode, you're going to hear about the experiences that Aziz had, Simon, as an Iraqi interpreter, what sort of dangers he faced, his experiences with the U.S. military and his band of brothers, and also the Iraqi citizens. Join us. When we lived there, you know, we went to the bunkers, all these moments, the laughter, you know, stories. So to me, it was more fun because it, like that, that's how I, how I see it. Like I would love to, if, if I'm asked, what part of your life would you like to be repeated? I would say that experience. Wow. You know, I want to, yeah, I want, I want that experience to be repeated. The people I work with, uh, I, I'm still connected with them, like until today. And, and, and I can, I can send you some photos as well, uh, afterwards. Uh, you know, um, Captain, uh, uh, Captain James Briscoe, he visited me in the house, uh, two times, uh, Cornell Cooper as well, two times. I visited Cornell Stats, who is in Colorado, in Longmont, uh, as well. I'm staying in touch with, with all the other team members. We still, you know, call and message and, and, and exchange photos and, you know, so it, it wasn't, and that was in 2010 or nine or 11, you know, so we, we're, it's been like over, over like 13 years or, or 14 years and we're still friends. And I think, I believe, and I will do my best to stay connected forever. So that's the kind of, of relationship we established there, you know. Do you remember the first time that you um, went out as as an interpreter? Do you remember what that was like? Were you nervous? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I we had to wear a mask, so you 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 know people don't don't see the face and everything else. Uh, but I was always like. Uh, in the beginning for, I would say maybe a couple missions, you know, a couple trips. I wasn't going on, uh, my, my job was not just to go on missions, but sometimes I also work on investigations or interrogating some detainees or, uh, on translating documents or on sitting behind in a big conference and, and talk. But the, the times I went on a mission, you know, definitely, um, I, I, it was, it wasn't, 
it wasn't the, the fun times for me, but, but I was more of like worried for, for myself and, and my team as well. Uh, I will give you one example. One, one time we went on a, on a mission to, uh, our base is called, uh, Bayok, Basra Operation Command. It's a small, smaller base. Uh, but we go to the main base to, uh, get supplies, to get food, you know, to, to reload and come back again. Uh, so every time we go on that road, we get hit by IEDs. You know, we get hit by, you know, uh, we get shot at, things like that. Uh, and, 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 and later on, we, we realized that, you know, when we announce our moves, and we tell the, you know, the, because we got to get permission from the Iraqi government to, 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 to make the trip. So when we go and say, Hey, you know, we have a mission today. We're going to this base. Which road you're going to take? We're going to take this road. Okay. We realize when we do that, we get hit. When we don't do that, we, we don't get hit, you know? So there's always people within the government that has more connections with militias, you know? So on one trip, I was talking with a guy named David. He was not part of my team, uh, but he is from, I believe, from Austin, you know, as, as I remember. Uh, he was a young guy, and he wanted to become a, um, a, a math teacher. And very smart guy, always happy, smiling, very polite, uh, works as, as, a, as a guard in the, in the main gate. He has glasses and reads books and read math. That's how he says he wants to be a, you know, a math teacher. And uh, we were going on a mission and in two convoys. So he was in front of us and we were going behind him. And then we got uh, shot at we, IED and then we, got, we start to get shot. And he was the gunner on, on the front uh, convoy. So at that time he shot, he got shot and then he passed away. He died. Mm. So that really stayed in, in my, in, in, in my heart, in my mind, you know, he was not one of my team, like my direct reports, but he was one of the people I used to talk with in the base. I find it interesting, sad, but interesting in a macabre way. <clears throat> how he mentioned that when his father died, he didn't cry. He was shocked, right, as you would be. But he he remembers this very vividly and talks about, you know, being, you know, being sad and all that. And that's the other part of Azid's story that I really found to be um, compelling is, you know, I mean, if you were to, if you were to just type out the text, not hear his voice, and just read it, select clips of it, you would think that you were hearing an account from a U.S. serviceman Yeah, during a very difficult time in Iraq. You would not realize that he was an Iraqi citizen embedded with the U.S. forces. He was that integrated with them. He was that connected with them. And I think that that's his, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's amazing to me. And it's something I didn't really expect to hear when I conducted this interview. You know, the, uh, the uh, the military we've always talked about the esprit de corps, you know yeah. that that uh, certain units had during World War II, and certainly there's that going on now. And the fact that you know Aziz, who had not come from a military background, gets plucked out of the civilian population and put into a military unit, 
that had to be uh, exciting, exhilarating, bewildering. I mean, yeah. a number of emotions going through him, but I can imagine that that esprit de corps would really affect someone like him who was from a different culture, a different I- set of ideals in a lot of ways, and uh, um, not being a military person, not having had that training, you know, that you go through with basic training and, and you know, getting familiar with the, the culture of the military. So I can imagine it was very powerful for him. One of the things I was going to say and ask you, Tony, maybe he gets to this. He mentions that they'd always get hit by IEDs and they went on one road, but not on another yeah. road. Yeah. Now, was he kind of saying that were there moles in the, in the middle, in the organization that knew what route they were going to take? That's exactly, that's exactly what he was saying is that when they stopped clearing their route with the Iraqi government, they stopped getting hit by IEDs. And when they cleared their route, they would almost always get hit by IEDs. Huh? (laughs) Yeah. That's the part of an occupation force. That's really, really difficult. You know, that, that, you know, that, that, that counterinsurgency. Yeah. That we heard Dale Coyenga talk about with the civilian affairs to make sure that, you know, Iraq and Iraqis felt like, hey, the Americans are going to leave. We don't want to be here. But certain certain things have to be in place before that occurs. Because if we leave, and we did, then the same sort of crap is going to happen to the Iraqi people. If you're part of the wrong tribe, they're going to get blown up by IEDs and they are getting blown up by IEDs. So the Mm -hmm. only way to stop it is to stop it and not pretend like it's just because the Americans are there. So uh, along those lines of, of, uh, you know, traitorous, traitorous actions, basically, does he have have any fear for his safety in the U S um, you know, is there any part like, for instance, you know, he lives in the Colorado area. Is that going to be a concern for him from a safety perspective? Is there any concern for any of these interpreters that come to the U.S. that that will follow him? So he's actually in the uh, Houston area, ah. but a lot a lot of his team members are in the Denver area. And I'm going to be working to interview them as soon as I meet with them. He's already mentioned a couple already. Um, you know, I never asked him that. I didn't. And and what's interesting about this interview, Ryan, is that, and I think we said this earlier in, in the running tape, he's younger than us. This is the first person we've interviewed who's <laughs> no younger than we younger are. than us. Come on. I know. It's like, holy I'm crap. Still he's 18, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, so what I'd like to be able to do when we drop this episode is to have people encourage people to ask some questions on our Facebook page or our website. And then let's have Aziz back on and hit up these follow-up questions. I'd really like to do that because I didn't ask him that. We, We don't choose who we be brother with. We don't choose where we get born, but we, we can, you know, we, we, we don't choose like where we are born, what family, but we can choose who we be brother with, who we, where we wanted it, like now I'm, I'm living here and I've been here for uh, coming out 11 years and I never went back there. So yeah. you have mentioned your team several times. How, how is that structured? Was there a group of, of soldiers who you were assigned to? What did that look like? Yes, yes. My team is, uh, as I mentioned, uh, 
my main report, because in any organization, in the military or any organization, you know, you have to have the structure and who works with who, who mainly assigned with who. And because, you know, I have bachelor's in English literature, so I fit more better with the, the team I work with. It's awesome team. It's called MIT-Team, Military Transitioning Team. And that team consists of Navy, of Air Force, of, 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 of Army, of different uh, units to form that team, which has the mission of training the Iraqi commando battalion, training the Iraqi forces, moving the authority to Iraqis in that town and, 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 and make it successful. Uh, so that was, that was my main team. And I work with them, you know, my, my own hours, but sometimes like other teams ask for me, like, can we use Simon? You know, we're going on a mission. We're short. Can we short on personnel? Can we use Simon? You know, uh, sometimes I have my time days off because, you know, you, you, I also, as an interpreter, you get some, some time off. You get scheduled, you get time off. I don't go to my house. I stay in the base. So in my time off, I work with the other teams, you know, as well. When you think back, you know, as your time as an interpreter, what other, what other memories stick out after all this time? What other experiences? Everything. Like, like I said, we were like a family, you know, it wasn't like for me, I chose to, to join as after I mentioned to you the story about when all my cousin and everything else I chose because I love the culture. I want to be part of it. I want to help, you know. So when I went with the with the U.S. military, it was not a job for me. It was something that I believed in. I wanted to do. Uh, so there's a the good and bad, like the the moments where we have the nice days, and 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 you know, with the base I worked in, it, it, it used to be a very old hotel. Uh, like a big giant hotel with a big land, like, you know, you can say a desert. And also it has a place where airports as well. So it's a huge, yeah. So we, we, in our downtime, you know, we go there and we do some fishing. Me and my team, all the soldiers, you know, we, we, we had some fun time. We do fishing. We sit down, tell stories. We, we play like cornhole and all the stuff like that. But in the same time, we have the time where, we sit down and, and, and like I was a cultural advisor too. So I sit down with my team and, and, uh, and, 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 and tell them like what makes the local people upset certain things here. Now we have like they're very normal, but they're not, not normal. Uh, and, and, you know, it was a very critical job. And, and I, I had many situations like, uh, some of them like, you know, I, I it's funny to mention, but. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to go through the, those details of you know worked with a subject major who was oh, very strict. So that was uh, some tough time with him, and uh, used to get mad at, at the Iraqi people uh, working in the base. And uh, he was very tough. He was a ranger, and um, he asked me to translate every or interpret every single word for word. And he used to be like he want to fight. You know, he, he's very tough. And like that, that was like very, yeah, yeah, yeah. that was very, 
I love him. He's, he's awesome, you know. Uh, but like, I'm like, Sergeant Major, please, you know, you, he's like, no, they, this is what they need to know. You let them know this, you know, you make sure you say everything I'm saying right now. And we go through these things and, and they, they later, they come to me and they say, Hey, well, I'm like, it's not me. I'm sorry. You know, I'm just doing my job. You know, I hadn't thought about that, but you're the messenger. You're the person that they're going to kind of be kind of angry at if they don't like what's going on um what what about did you were 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 some of the missions more dangerous than others were there some missions or some things that you did that you were more concerned about or did you feel a degree of safety generally no 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 it it was all a war zone like in, in my opinion um no, it was all, it was all like all dangerous, you know, everything there was dangerous because, uh, I mean, we're very powerful. The United States is very powerful. The, the U.S. military is very strong, but in the same time, we are not in our own land. We're not in the United States. We are in South Iraq. Uh, we are living with people who we hope and believe and pray that they are to our side, which, you know, the most of them, 99%, they wear. That was an interesting comment. Did yeah, you just hear I, that? I, my eyebrows raised. I was like, huh? Really? Would 99%. You, would you have ever have thought or heard from any no. of the coverage that we had no. that anything <laughs> short of maybe three people were potentially okay with what we were trying to do over there? I, I, I had the impression that it was more like maybe more like 50-50, you know, at, at best. I did not know it was that high of a percentage that were that were on our side, so to speak. And even if he's even if it's inflated, let's just say it's only fifty percent, it's still much higher than what you would have ever have gleaned from a lot of the coverage. And he, the earlier clip when he talks about the Ranger, the sergeant major, for the for the audience who may have missed that. So Aziz is a cultural advisor. It's his job to let us know the right way to approach asking people in country, uh, other Iraqis, questions about things. You can't just kick in a door and ask the mom to lift up her shirt to look for guns, right? <laughs> I mean, those sort of things are going to cause a lot of problems in in, in, a, in a variety of countries. And so it's kind of funny because it's basically what he's saying was the sergeant major was like, you read this thing that I wrote word for word. You do not say anything different. And Aziz is like, look, I'm trying to help you. And then at the end of the day, Aziz says it made it really tough on him because they'd be yelling at him because he was honoring the wishes of this uh, of this, uh, this this this. this Ranger. I thought that was hilarious. I wonder and how long it took for the U.S. military to trust Aziz. Like at what point, you know, how long did it take before they're like, okay, we can trust this guy. He's not, he's not, you know, a double spy basically or anything like that. Well, according to his story of this particular Sergeant Major, that was never. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, but you know, yeah. th think about that. You're in a war zone. He just mentioned the IEDs and how they didn't tell the Iraqi government um, where they were going, that their route was generally more clear. You know, it's going to create, that's the biggest problem with an occupying force and why any country that decides they want to invade another country, <clears throat> Russia and Ukraine, needs to think about this. Oh, hey, do you think the Russians have cultural advisors in Ukraine? 
<laughs> right. <laughs> Probably not. Right. You know what I'm saying? At any rate, I, I just love picking on the Russians. They've been our perennial enemy for a century now. Um, and if we have any, you know, listeners in Russia, I don't really care if I pissed you off. It's just tough. But at any rate, <laughs> so, so the bottom, the bottom line is, is, um, it's, it's, it was really interesting to hear some of the struggles that he had with some of our servicemen, but then he reminded us that, you know what, we were in their country and that always creates a lot of friction. So mm-hmm. anyway, I wanted to stop and kind of kick that around a little bit. I thought that was interesting. 99%. 99%. But in the same time, and again, you can't really gamble on life. So everything was dangerous. Every mission was dangerous. Living in the base was dangerous. Uh, there's no one, you know, uh, I would say the most dangerous missions are like ambushes, you know, when we go on, on doing like some ambushes, you know, or when we go and, 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 and say we are going to this place and again, some, uh, you know, some of the people who work in the, like in the Iraqi military as soldiers and they hear our move, they go and they pass the information to, uh, to, to their allies with, with the militias. And that creates, you know, all of these, uh, you know, them going and planting IEDs or doing this and that. Uh, but generally I would say everything was, every day was a mission. Every day was dangerous. Uh, we had the fun and we had the, the bad days. Uh, but generally it was a war zone, you know, every day is, is something else, you know, everything is, is something new. Well, you mentioned earlier that there were times when the base that you were on would take mortar fire or, or gunfire. Yes. Did that happen? Yes. Did that happen exactly. pretty frequently? Yeah, frequently, you know, uh, our base and the main base where we, we go also get the, you know, the, the supplies. So we always get hit by mortar rounds, you know, and again, I, I mentioned that the, the, those people who took over the weapons from the war, they, they took over so many weapons. Like they, they can use, I don't know now because they haven't been there, but I believe that they last for a long time. So they were stationing them in certain areas and shooting mortar rounds on the base. So we get the siren and we go into bunkers and, you know, we get hit and, you know, by, uh, by mortar, uh, mortar rounds. Uh, luckily with, when I was in the, in, in my base, nobody like in my base, nobody got, you know, killed from the mortar rounds, uh, because my base was, uh, shared between Iraqis and, uh, American forces. Uh, and when I say by Iraqis, I mean by the Iraqi, uh, uh, leadership of the military, all generals, Colonels, lieutenant colonels, and so they don't want to, you know, they, they want to keep it protected. Uh, but when we get, we still get hit, and and when we go to to the uh, to the main base, there we get hit more because it's mainly military uh, United States. So, do you did you get the sense that the Americans that you were working with appreciated? the danger that yes. you were in as an interpreter, did they, did they respect that? Yes, 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 for sure. hundred percent. Um, my team, as I mentioned, were awesome. Like we're still talking, 
when they were there, we always sit down and, 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 and talk and, and, and they tell me like, we're not going to leave you behind. We want you to come to the United States. You know, it's, it's not going to be safe for you because I remember one time we had an incident where, um, you know, I don't see it here in the United States, like a, one of the uh, Toyota vehicles is like a 18 passengers called Coaster. So that is commonly used there in the Middle East. And we call it a bus. And some of the interpreters, about maybe 13 or 14 interpreters, coming into the main base where they work. And they get stopped by a checkpoint, by Iraqi military checkpoints. And driver stops, open the door. They talk with him. I, uh, where are you guys going? Oh, we're going to the military base. Oh, who are you guys with? He says, I don't know. I'm a driver. Ask the guys. So the guys, where are you working? Who are you working with? Oh, we work with the United States military. Okay. Would you mind please stepping outside? They step outside. So he's supposed to search the car, you know, that, that checkpoint. That checkpoint is fake because in Iraq, you can always go to the soup, to the market and buy you know, military uniform, never make it so like it's real because that's where the military buy their uniform as well. Mm. Uh, so once they step outside, you know, they, they had them turn their faces and shot all of them. While he was there as an interpreter, these are people that he knew. He, um, this was a checkpoint not far from his base. And Ryan, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I remember reading stories about those sorts of incidents happening you know, quite frequently after the surge in 2007, when we were trying to, well, even before that, we were trying to tamp down the insurrection. Um, so, you know, when we talk about, you know, were you in danger and all that outside of just the day-to-day stuff, outside of the fact that he had to knock on doors uh, and some people perceived him as a traitor and he felt more comfortable living on base and he got this crap going on, right? Where where you have planned executioners or executions directed specifically at these individuals of which he's a part of. He's, he's an interpreter, just like those men who got massacred. It's, I, it, it's, yeah. So I don't know. You know, I understand that the way we prosecuted this war, as far as the, the strategy behind it was wholly different compared to the world war two, where there was a front that moved across the entire continent of Europe, essentially from the East and from the West. Um, as I understand it, it wasn't like that with Iraq. I mean, it was really more of a, we go take a town, we try to set it up to sustain itself a bit, we pull back out, we keep moving, we leave maybe some uh, 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 some advisors around to kind of help rebuild the schools and that sort of thing, try to get win the hearts and the minds. Mm-hmm. But if if we would have done a more of a World War II style, you know, um, prosecution of this war where there was an actual front and we took every town, we moved all across Iraq. And maybe this is the way we're doing it now is really the better way to do it. I don't know, but it seems like this sort of thing, it's very porous in this way, because then you've got this sort of thing that can happen a lot more easily. You've got the market that sells the U.S. uniforms and and all this sort of stuff. It's like, I mean, why could we not keep this tamped down from what i read in the book you know cobra 2 and other sources rumsfeld and others felt um this mission for shock and off or doing as much as you can with a small 
lethal force to go in there, kick in the front door, get rid of Saddam Hussein, and then leave. And there really wasn't a whole lot of planning baked into this idea of, and you heard Aziz say this earlier, U.S. forces tactically in terms of our military superiority was undeniably successful. So successful that huge caches of weapons and tanks and mortars were were left behind and buried by a retreating Iraqi army because they knew they had no chance. Mm. Well, the United States didn't have anything in place to help identify these caches of weapons, to, to have an occupation force, to have the troops that we needed until 2007 that could actually be an occupying force that can um, can be the strongest tribe, which is the only thing that a lot of cultures respect. And we weren't the strongest, we were the strongest tribe during the offensive operations, but during the occupation, we were spread too thin and we weren't. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just, um, it, it, it was a self-inflicted wound. You would think we would have learned from that because we did the same thing in Vietnam, but you know, it's the thing about history. You can have people banging the gong all they want, but there's always someone who thinks they know more than the person before them. Mm-hmm. All right, let's continue on with some of these clips. He's got a lot more amazing experiences that he shared with me. Yeah, that that that, that was, I think, in, in, in 2000 and maybe end of 2009. So if it, 13 or 14 interpreters got killed right there, you know, and, and that, that was the story that, you know, everybody was talking about. So, so my team were very worried about me, you know, they, and, and, and other interpreters as well with me. Uh, and they know that, you know, we, we can't survive long time after the U.S. military leave. Uh, because, you know, sooner or later we will be, we will be noticed. We will be, you know, and again, we, some people, not everybody, look at interpreters as, you know, traitors, you know. So then when the military left, you talked about having to close down the base and that you were sad and the other guys were sad. I mean, what was everybody that like? Was, what, did, yeah. what did they do? Or did they just kind of, did you just kind of go back out into the world? What happened? No, um, before the U.S., for me, speaking for myself, with when the United States military said, we are going to, leave, but we want you to be out, you know, of here. We, we can't leave you behind. Uh, but it took time. It took two years for me, actually. Two years and I would say November 2011 to, yeah, two years and one month for me to, to get the approval and move, move, move to the United States. Uh, and that is with all the supporting documents that my team said, we can't leave you behind. We want you to move over. What, what, what can we do for you is we can provide you with all of the documentation that proves that your role was very sensitive without you being here and, and, and like supporting us with, with, with the missions, we couldn't accomplish our mission successfully and safely as well. And, you know, I mean, language is very critical. I mean, you, you and I are having this conversation here. If we talk different language, we, we need a translator and that interpreter or translator has to be, you know, trusted, you know, especially in a war zone because every mistake can cost a life, you know. So they said we can list all of these details that you supported us and we will recommend you to move to the United States. Uh, there was a program uh, called SIV, Special Immigrant Visa, 
That's for people who work on behalf of the U.S. government. So you apply for SIV and you provide all the supporting documents, all the recommendation letters, and you leave contact information where they can actually reach back to us and, 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 and validate that information. And we will do our best to get you out, uh, out of there. Uh, and I knew it's going to take time because, you know, as you know, there are many people who work with the military and with the government always things take long. Uh, and it's not, it's, I, I wasn't thinking it's going to take two years. I was thinking it's going to take six months or, or seven months, but I had to start looking for a job for me to stay, keep supporting my family financially, especially as I mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm the only one supporting my family. Uh, cause my sisters that one of them left to live in UK, you know, she, she's a PhD in biology. She was teaching there in the university. My other sister immigrated to Kuwait. Everybody was leaving, you know, so I stayed, you know, there to, to support my, my mom, who's still there right now as we speak. So, uh, I looked for a job and I realized working in the oil field is the best thing I can do, uh, for various reasons. The first main reason for me was because I want to work in the actual field and be gone and nobody will see me. And then when they don't see me for a month, a couple of weeks, you know, two months, then they see me a day. It's okay. But to see me every single day, they know my moves and everything else. I'm more in danger. So, uh, I applied for jobs and because I worked again as a, a diesel mechanic, I speak English and, you know, I have my bachelor's degree. So then I found a job with, uh, at that time, Weatherford in, in, in Iraq. And I worked in the field for, uh, I, I was doing field and, and office, but mainly field, mainly focused on the field. Um, and I worked for a, uh, a couple of years. Yeah. So th- this is where our paths crossed. He was working for <laughs> Weatherford and attending a conference when, when we met at image this year. So this, he was working for Weatherford a while ago, but I wanted to stop this here because, uh, for two things, one, I think, I think having two years to get somebody out of country who is seen as a traitor by a small segment of very dangerous people is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm so grumpy today. Why am I so angry? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm angry at the Russians. I'm angry at the United States Immigration Service. I'm just being a jerk today. But at any rate, that, that's thing number one. And then thing number two for people who called getting older, Tony, I think it is just, I'm just prickly right now. I'm just angry about this. And here's something else I'm angry about. You shaking your cane at the sky. Why am I so grumpy with, with things? But the other thing for people in our audience who don't know, you know, Ryan and I work in the oil and gas sector. And so what basically he said was, Hey, I'm going to be here for a while. He thought it was going to be six months. It ended up being two years. I need to hide somewhere. And the oil fields, um, I think in northern Iraq, were a good place to do that because even the oil fields that we work here, we work on towers, we work on shifts. And if you work offshore, for example, you can work 30 days on, 30 days off. They have company towns where you can stay in. So basically what he did, even though his degree was like in, in English and stuff, he became a diesel mechanic, worked at Weatherford to hide until he could get his visa. 
Isn't it sad? That is sad. And and you're right. I agree with you. I don't understand why they, they wouldn't have identified Aziz early on as someone who is an asset to our mission in Iraq yeah. and put him on the fast track to get him out of there with the troops. I, so move in the United States right away and then do his yeah. paperwork or while he's here. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't understand this. If anyone works for the immigration agency of the U.S. government, they can shed some light on you know, why I'm being unreasonable. I mean, hey, we have a Facebook page. We have a website. Let us know. And if you don't come to defend yourself, I'm going to keep attacking you because I think it's bullshit. But I mean, even if they could have moved him to a, a neutral area, like even a military base somewhere to work. I know. You know, just to keep him safe. Instead of leaving him out in the open, you know, in the population for he had to fend for himself and cover his own butt on a daily basis. Uh, right. Yeah, just yeah, just survive for a couple of years. I know the militias already killed your dad and and they routinely execute, round up and massacre other, you know, uh translators and stuff. But you know, just keep your head down, young man, and we'll see what we can do. For two freaking years. Yeah. Oh, I'm really I know. angry about this. We might <laughs> let's move on to the next clip, Brian, or I'll think it's spontaneously combust. Well, to the chagrin of many, I didn't spontaneously combust, but I must admit that some of the clips in this particular set got me a bit riled up and what you just heard was Aziz talk about all the trials and tribulations associated with being an Iraqi citizen working for the U.S. Armed Forces as the United States had occupied Iraq and was trying to leave and what you're going to hear in the final installment part four of the Aziz Al-Rafai series is the turmoil that was created when the United States military made the decisions to pull up stakes and leave. So uh, join us for that. It'll be eye-opening for many, except for those maybe who were there. Till next week. All right. Uh, A little bit of listener feedback here. This one comes from Clayton Underwood. Uh, he's a Canadian, as I learned, and he speaks about the German jets. I think it's probably related to the Harold Dunn series, who was a B-17 co-pilot during World War II um, and became a POW. And it was co-hosted by Marilyn Walton, who is seen as a subject matter experts or expert pardon me, on all things 8th Air Force, and in particular, the POWs and their experiences. So when you get a chance, check it out. And also, Marilyn Walton, for those who may not know, has been tapped or tagged as an advisor on a new series that's coming out by Spielberg and Hanks on the mighty 8th Air Force. Uh, It's called Masters of the Sky. At any rate, back to Clayton. Clayton writes, I had a friend who was a Canadian fighter pilot who flew in the European theater for most of the war. He told me that a broadcast that that the Germans hosted would announce that their jets were coming to bomb the airbase he was flying out of, and they included the time that the Germans were going to be there and bomb this airbase. The Allied planes would scramble, but the jets would arrive, bomb the base using fragmentary bombs that would explode in the air, damaging dozens of brand new fighters, and then they would escape untouched. The Allies would push the wreckage to the side and uncreate new planes 
And then the next day, it would happen all over again. So a couple of uh, comments here. One, yeah, I think he's referring to the ME-262, which was an amazing aircraft, that uh, jet aircraft, the first operational jet aircraft during, uh, well, in the world, developed by the Germans, but it wasn't really ready for prime time until very late in the war. And uh, Clayton mentions that when these planes were bombed, they just uncrate some new ones. By this time in the war, the United States and Great Britain and others could would, could produce far, far more aircraft than the, the, the German Luftwaffe could, could ever destroy. Uh, it was a war of attrition at this point, and there's no way the Germans were going to win that. The other element that I want to emphasize is that He's from Canada, and we have a substantial international audience, which we are really humbled by. A full quarter, over 25% of our audience is from outside of the United States in places like Australia, Canada, of course, United Kingdom, New Zealand, Ireland, Germany, Sweden, Japan, Singapore, Israel. Uh, If you're someone from overseas listening to our podcast, we want to let you know that we really appreciate that. And we also encourage you to reach out to us and share any feedback you may have from a different perspective regarding or relating to something that we're talking about. So um, a lot of times we can get caught in our own echo chamber. So if there's an element of what we're saying that you feel like you want to expand on or give a different perspective of, if you write to us, we'll share it on the air with our listeners because I think they appreciate that too. So until next week.